I'm Chad Main, the founder of legal services company Percipient, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology, innovation in the legal industry, and the impact tech is having on the law. On today's episode, we talk about being proactive with data privacy programs with Chris Hanman. He's the former GC for Snapchat and now COO and co-founder of data privacy management company TerraTrue. On today's show, we're talking about shifting left with data privacy. Shift left is a software development concept that aims to catch defects and bugs before software is deployed. And it's also how Chris Hanman and the TerraTrue team think legal teams, privacy officers, compliance professionals should think about data privacy. TerraTrue is a data privacy platform that companies can use and integrate with the other software they use to get people thinking early on about the data privacy implications of the products they're building. As we will hear Chris explain, in today's world where it seems like a new privacy regulation is coming out every day, Companies can't just ship software and build other products and hope to deal with privacy issues after the fact. Instead, companies need to think about data privacy from the get-go, and that's where TerraTrue comes in. So, how did Chris end up in the data privacy world in the first place? Well, as we were here, that's a really interesting story, and he also has a legal background that is quite different from many. At a law school, Chris was an appellate lawyer and worked on high-profile cases that ended up in federal appellate courts and some before the U.S. Supreme Court. But, after a few years of doing that, Chris's phone rang, and it was an executive search firm looking to hire Snapchat's very first general counsel. Because Chris had been doing more and more privacy work in his appellate practice, people began to notice, and that's why the search firm reached out to him. Chris did, in fact, make the jump over to Snapchat, and to say he hit the ground running is probably an understatement. Among other intense and high-profile legal issues Chris had to deal with for the company, the FTC was all over Snapchat about data privacy issues that ultimately ended up being resolved in a consent decree. Obviously, Chris is in the middle of getting that thing resolved. Fast forward to 2017, Chris left Snapchat, took a little time off with his family, and then started talking to some of his old Snap colleagues about what was next, and that's when TerraTrue was born. But before we even get to TerraTrue, I found out Chris was a crossword aficionado. Are you a fan of Wordle? (laughs) I am a huge fan of Wordle. And I'm asking because I saw you have published at least two New York Times crossword puzzles. How does that even happen? I've always been a, a crossword puzzle aficionado. And at some point years ago, I was actually reading like a Slate article. They used to do these periodical features where it was like day in the life of somebody. And it was actually a crossword constructor. And it suddenly like, I realized, oh, I could probably try my hand at that. And so I did. And this was early before there was really technology to help. It's like old graph paper. Oh, so you do this by hand, you do this manually. Well, back then I did. Eventually I started actually finding software to kind of help out in that process. But I actually sent off a few to uh, Will Shorts of the New York Times, and the first like three or four were like ceremoniously rejected because they were terrible, honestly. Um, uh, <laughs> and then I actually finally got one through, and that was the first break. Then I had one day I was like caught by this incredible uh, inspiration uh, back when John Stewart and Stephen Colbert were doing their you know March to Keep Fear Alive rally to restore sanity. This is like twelve years ago at this point, and I came up with theme overnight and quickly sent it off to Will Shorts because I now had his email address when he accepted it. And I was like uh, a little bit skeptical. Should I even like, am I good friends with Will Shorts now where I can just send off a, a new submission by email? And he, uh, he was like, yeah, this is uh, too cool not to print. So that, that, that was how I got two back to back. And um, I think I was a two hit uh, uh, wonder. I've never tried to do another That's since cool. then. That's really cool. And how long, obviously you did the one kind of rush there, but how long does it take you in general to do one of those? It will depend. I mean, again, I'm not a seasoned pro here, so I will stumble my way through various themes and try to get the fill right. So, you know, you actually have some lively words in there. Uh, it would take me maybe 
two, three days to kind of get the grid right and then a day to kind of like clue uh, up the words uh, and hopefully have something that feels fresh. That's cool. That's really cool. So back to the Wordle. You do like it. I'm a big fan too. I'm a huge fan. Although I have to say my stats are, although I'm happy to pr- say that I've, I'm still have a hundred percent, you know, uh, record. My distribution may not be as good as I'd like it to be because my two young uh, boys have really gotten into it as well. So now we do this kind of like an activity. So our opening words sometimes are a little whimsical and may reflect kind of what their passions are of the, the moment. So you know, horse or bunny will often be the opening word, uh, which may not be the most strategic at the outset, but we nonetheless always manage to like crush it within six. Well, that's cool. That's really cool. So you started your career as an appellate lawyer, or did you grow into that and you started some other area of law? No, I quickly, after doing a few clerkships, uh, stumbled my way into doing appellate litigation. In large measure, I knew I wanted to do litigation, I and I liked the the kind of the world of kind of constitutional law and uh, some of like the bigger federal questions. And I also knew I didn't have the disposition to be a sort of a shin kicking litigator and do trial <laughs> court work. So I kind of like the relatively laid back pace of appellate litigation, right? Very few uh, sudden emergencies that it would kick in. And you always knew whether you're filing one brief or two briefs. And that's pretty much the life cycle of the case and kind of suited the way I wanted to practice law. You know, a lot of people come out of law school, they aspire to be appellate lawyers, but it's not that easy to uh, appellate lawyer job, like straight appellate work. Maybe you you do litigate and then you appeal some of the cases that you win or lose. How did you happen to land a job that was appellate? I was very fortunate that I'd had two clerkships in D.C. And I was at that time, this was the early 2000s, I found a, a law firm. It was then called Hogan and Hartson. It's now Hogan Levels. It was one of the first firms to have a true dedicated Supreme Court and federal appeals court practice. I think most firms now of any size now have uh, a growing bench of appellate stars. But back in, you know, two decades ago, there were only a handful of firms that had a true dedicated practice. And I was very fortunate to interview with that firm, with that particular group. And given the trust early on to take on cases, I think one of the very first assignments I ever had was a cert petition which against wow. all odds managed to get granted. And I remember actually doing that uh, and thinking, oh, this is easy. And I'm not sure I, I had another one granted for like a few more years. So, you know, it's, it's one of these things where uh, I might've had beginner's luck coming out of the gates. And how much of the work was amicus versus straight direct appeals? I would say, you know, the amicus work was, especially at the Supreme Court side. And at that point in my career, there was probably a, on the Supreme Court docket, uh, the majority of my work was doing uh, amicus work. As far as the other uh, appeals courts the, within the circuits, there was much less of that. The, the work in the circuits was almost disproportionately on behalf of clients. Now, as we both know, there are some hot button constitutional issues coming out of the Supreme Court right now. So do you miss it at all? Would you like to be there in the mix working on the, these kind of issues? You know, every year in June at this time when the court is rallying to wrap up its docket and I see the, the flurry of opinions come down, I do kind of miss it, right? There is something really exciting about the nature of the questions that the court is tackling, the breadth of what these decisions are bringing for people in their real lives. And I think that's one of the things that you lose sight of sometimes when you are actually litigating at the court. The questions become 
you know, you're so focused on the legal principles and the arguments that you can sometimes lose sight of the impacts. And we've seen that, I think, pretty concretely over the last week or so uh, on how these decisions have truly life-altering consequences. And that, to me, is actually one of the more interesting and kind of humbling aspects of the law and kind of the powerful aspects of the law. And one thing that I think practitioners and judges alike increasingly need to have. So for me, there is a sense of like, yes, having a direct say or at least having some say in, in helping to shape those outcomes, there's a part of me that does miss that. Um, there's also a good part of me that recognizes that the court today and the practices may not be sort of the way it was 20 years ago when I first got into appellate. And I kind of am happy to have done what I did and now really enjoying, you know, living a new, you know, additional chapters now. You have an interesting career. You jump from appellate work to GC, now you're an entrepreneur, but that's an interesting jump too, at least I think. I mean, I don't, I don't think you hear about it every day where an appellate lawyer becomes GC of a company. And not only that, it's, it's a pretty high profile company, Snap. How did that even come to be? I think maybe I heard somewhere in another podcast you were on that maybe you were doing some appellate work that had data privacy issues. Is that how you got on the radar? Yeah. So I think a handful of, of things. Some of it is just, I think, kind of the dumb luck of the time. Uh, you know, you don't know how these things sort of come about. And I think there's always a sense of like, there's obviously a huge amount of luck, but also, they, you know, these aren't accidents either. You kind of work hard to put yourself in a position and hopefully, you know, good things will, will happen. And I will confess that while I'd always dreamed about being a GC in a tech company, I think that's kind of like this cool thing that a lot of lawyers especially ones who want to take on and embrace ambiguity and are comfortable with indeterminacy. I think that combination of tech and law is a really fascinating area for lawyers. And so there's always been something that had been like this romanticized view for me about going into that. But I didn't really go out of my way to apply. I shouldn't even apply for these things. Um, but you're right. That a lot of the work I'd been doing over the last few years and appellate had been geared around constitutional rights, statutory rights, privacy issues. And for one reason or another, that put me on the map when the executive search firm who had been engaged on behalf of Snapchat to, to find that GC saw me, told me out of the gates I was the dark horse because I had no previous in-house experience. <laughs> and I readily accepted that, that that did make me the dark horse. But you know, we continued to talk. And I think one of the things, and of course, I'm highly biased about this, but I do actually think that the appellate background ends up being an incredibly powerful training ground for GCs at early stage tech companies. And, and the reason why is that the appellate practice by nature, at least the way it, my nature was, it was aggressively generalist. It wasn't a specialty in like, you know, First Amendment or a specialty in patent. It was, you had to be a specialist in understanding complex ideas, breaking them down simply, reasoning from first principles, because all the questions that percolate to that level admit of no easy answer. And so you have to figure out the best path forward. And that is in many ways the mandate of the in-house counsel. You are confronting a lot of novel challenges, having to, again, reason from those first principles, tease out some sort of argument, reason how we can do it. And then, of course, there's a lot more that goes into it than that. But that kind of fundamental, especially at Snapchat at that time, was a particularly profound thing. And I think that story resonated with Evan, uh, the founder and CEO, and it was, it was a great time. Well, I read a quote from you, too. You said, to succeed as a legal chief, you have to embrace risk and the lack of certainty. That's kind of true about a pellet lawyer, too, right? I mean, the odds are against you sometimes, depending on what side of the, the V you're on. 
But there's no real certainty either way what, what the appellate court's going to do. I mean, you know what the settled law is, the precedent, but, you know, just as we saw this week, some stuff can go out the door. So does that hold true? I mean, did, did that help you, be, being able to deal with the uncertainty in appellate practice? Did it help you as a GC? Absolutely. And I think you're right that not only is there, of course, that a wild card that precedents might be either discarded or distinguished in ways that might admit of like a new change of a zeitgeist, the way people are approaching law. But I think a lot of times, and what I think people don't always appreciate is that the precedents themselves aren't always like etched in such clear contrasts. And there remain a lot of uh, indeterminate questions around how a certain rule applies in practice to any given fact pattern. And that's often what you're seeing at the federal appeals courts levels, right? Most of the cases that reach the appellate level, at least on the civil side of the docket, are there because there aren't easy answers. The ones where there's clear-cut precedent, those cases have usually settled. Uh, the ones that get to the appellate stage, really, there, there are uh, interesting novel questions for the most part. And it is the ability to be comfortable with those indeterminacies and understand how to take those ambiguities and move them in a direction that favors, obviously, when you're in private practice, your client, uh, and when you're a GC, your company, and kind of the broader macro interests and trends and kind of your own business objectives, that is a really interesting dynamic that begins to merge not just the world of law, but kind of the world of this entrepreneurism uh, that I think any modern GC has to embrace. And to your point, tech, I mean, tech is now presenting all kinds of interesting not just appellate questions, but legal questions, but especially at the appellate level, you know, like copyright, you know, you know, if you're using open source code or, you know, how much of somebody else's code is copyright infringement, I mean, these are real novel issues that, that tech is creating. Now with blockchain, we're going to see all kinds of crazy stuff there. Exactly. And I think the novelty of just the, the way the technology has created things we haven't anticipated, but then you compound that by applying laws that were written decades earlier that never mm -hmm. could have contemplated that, right? So you are now in a point um, where you are applying rules of general applicability, statutes that were crafted in an era and a typewriter drafted by a congressional committee, and trying to map them onto a digital world that is even foreign to those of us who kind of came of age maybe four or five years ago in the tech space. And so that is a uniquely difficult but important challenge. And it's not as if practitioners or in-house counsel or anyone can simply wave their hands and say, oh, well, who, this law was written long ago, therefore it shouldn't apply, or we don't know the answer. You have to figure out those answers. And if you right. can't reason, again, I, it's this phrase like reason from first principles, understanding kind of what the nature of those laws were, uh, being able to tease out these sort of pattern recognition, the draw analogies, there's a lot that can be done to arrive at reasoned answers and reason answers that may favor, you know, your client or uh, your industry, that is the huge challenge. And I think that often will separate GCs who kind of are the kind of the old school, just there to maintain compliance and, and those who are there to not just maintain compliance, but also sort of assert uh, and advance the, the mission of their tech clients. Were you the first lawyer at Snapchat or were there other lawyers there and you just assumed the GC position? I was the second lawyer. They had hired a corporate lawyer, a great guy who had been, I think by that point, maybe three years out of law school at the law firm that Snap had retained to do most of their uh, corporate work. A lot of startups, you know, you'll have like one law firm to pretty much run the, the show of all your work. And they had uh, hired him. And then, so fortunately, I, I stepped in at, to uh, an environment where 
I was charged with growing this this legal team and the broader uh, teams that ended up reporting into legal. But there was someone there already, and, and thankfully someone who was skilled, very skilled on, on the corporate side, because that's definitely the the blind spot in my legal background. Uh, most appellate lawyers are not particularly well versed in a lot of the, the corporate transactions. So that was a great complementary uh, skill sets there to, to join that. And when you left Snapchat, uh, was that 2017? Yes, end of 2017. How many attorneys were in the legal department then? The overall team, which by that point encompassed not just law, but the public policy, law enforcement, and compliance. I think we had about 82 or or so folks on the team. The vast majority of that, they were lawyers. You know, I think early on, you know, we were a really lean team. Uh, Eventually, you know, I joined as employee 55, I think, in in early 2014. Uh, I think... By the end of 2015, we were around 600 and so, and then 2017, 3,000. I mean, the, the, the kind of rise and just the overall headcount of the, the company, uh, you know, the legal team was always trying to play catch up. Uh, we never wanted to get, get out in front, but there's a huge amount of, of work to, to be done across a, a broad array. I mean, Snapchat, the product was, you know, went from just videos and, and photos to messaging to, uh, to all sorts of content production, distribution inviting a number of novelties around actually issues, like you said, copyright and, and, and whatnot. So we had to keep up, but it was, again, it made for incredibly exciting work. That's fascinating. You got to keep up because, okay, so you've got a perfect storm of stuff going on. <laughs> Your company's growing, but leaps and bounds. Your user base is growing. So th- these both present related, but different issues. Yep. You had a lot of stuff going on at, but what's your takeaway? What, what's the thing you learned coming from private practice and appellate law to assuming the GC role in charge of a whole legal department for a very fast-growing company. As I was getting ready for this role, everyone kept using the same tired cliche that just kept grinding on me about, oh, you're going to be drinking from the fire hose. And uh, I, I got really sick of it. I found it's just it's this hackneyed expression. But of course, when I got there, I was like, wow, there's truth to the cliche. <laughs> and, and now I understand why people use it all the time, because it, it, it was very, very true. Uh, and, and you're right. I mean, when I joined... Again, with 55 employees, we were already facing a number of outsized legal challenges. The company had made a few foot faults that got them under the radar of the FTC, and they were already now subjected to a 20-year consent decree uh, where they had to build a massive privacy program that was going to be audited every two years by the government. Uh, there was this founder's lawsuit uh, that the, the company was facing where they were seeking you know, billion-plus da- in damages, and a handful of other issues that we won't go into the docket here, but there was a lot going on. And coming from private practice and coming from, as I mentioned at the outset of our conversation, this relatively staid world of appellate litigation that had a predictable and somewhat cushy pace, it was a bit disorienting, to, to say the least, but also intoxicating in all the great ways. Like This is exactly the challenge that I wanted and immediately embraced. And I never worked harder, never worked longer. Work was never more like inspiring and it just felt like, and you're part of a team. I think that's the other aspect that you do miss as a appellate lawyer in particular, that can be a very monastic life of being in your office, reading cases and writing in your own sort of world. There's delight to, the, to be said, but there's something incredibly invigorating to go from that world to this world where you are surrounded in an open space for a minute. I didn't have a fancy you know office anymore uh, from a partner's office. I was now open desk, open environment, uh, just chatting with everybody, no sense of hierarchies. And that ability to kind of like take it all in, have to work really quickly, 
rely on judgment and pattern recognition to make quick moves, quick decisions, and be comfortable that you're making the best decision at that time, uh, as opposed to like spending weeks studying. Uh, that was there was something both frightening but truly exhilarating. I think if you can capture that and and, and buy into that, it's one of those once in a lifetime moments that just is is uh, you look back and like wow that was incredible to be a part of. If you have one piece of advice for anybody, it could be a fast-growing tech company or just you know, a manufacturing company. If you have any advice for a lawyer assuming a GC role that needs to, to build out a legal team, what's that one piece of advice you'd give them? It's hard to reduce it to one because so much of what you need to do is going to turn on the needs of that organization. So the one piece of advice is to really be thoughtful about what is it that your company is doing today and what are you trying to anticipate down the road? And I think as you look out, and whatever that answer is, whether you're in manufacturing or whether you're in tech, whether it's in e-com or whether it's somewhere else, there are going to be unique pitfalls and risks that you need to anticipate. And it's gaining that visibility, working with your executive leadership team to understand where the company wants to go, and really being proactive and anticipating that. That will help dictate kind of who you need and the skill sets that you need to kind of complement your own skill sets that you come into it. And then once you identify what that, that person is, what I would say if I had to reduce all of my hiring criteria to one, I would over-index, and this is not something you usually hear for lawyers, over-index on creativity. Because right. a lawyer who is simply too, uh, used to sort of applying their own uh, playbooks, whether they're a contract lawyer or are just kind of like going through their own motions, they are not going to be the types of people who can be comfortable with the fast pace and that ambiguity that is inevitably going to confront those early young public. So it's finding lawyers who actually do crave that kind of creative muscle, who want to understand, who, who enjoy kind of the puzzles that the law can sometimes create and, and wanting to kind of untangle that. And that is a little difficult to suss out, but if you can suss that out in those interviews, I think you tee yourself up for a really smart team that has the same kind of agility that the rest of the company probably is going to be needing to have as they compete. You know, we had the GC of Palo Alto Networks not, not too long ago, and he said something real similar. He did say creativity, but curiosity too. Yeah. Which kind of go hand in hand. They right? do. You got to be curious to learn new stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. funny you say that. Like, I, I have this. Uh, I don't. I don't think it's my own coinage, but you know, I, there's obviously the phrase "idle curiosity." I, I, I actually think of like active curiosity. I want people to be right. actively curious about these things, and I think if you can be actively curious, and then from that curiosity, be creative in how you solve those curious puzzles, then I think you have an incredible springboard into doing great things, and the agility to go in a number of different directions. That again a startups of any flavor are, are going to need to demand. When we come back, Chris tells us about the origin story for TerraTrue. I'm Chad Main, and you're listening to Technically Legal. We need to do more with less. That is the key takeaway nowadays from almost every survey of in-house counsel. But what if it didn't have to be that way? What if you actually could do more for less? By combining legal expertise and technology, Percipient enables legal teams to get more work done for less. Buried in contracts and sales is frustrated with turnaround time? We can help with that. Did you just get hit with a subpoena and reviewing 100,000 documents and files will tax your resources or cost you a small fortune in billable hours? We can help there too. 
our team of legal professionals leverage tech and project management principles with the right amount of human oversight to deliver precise, efficient, and cost-effective legal solutions. Whether it's legal operations and contract management support, subpoena compliance, or document review, Percipient is your partner in really doing more for less. Percipient, legal services powered by technology. We're going to get back to my conversation with Chris Hanman, the COO and co-founder of TerraTrue in just a second. But as you know, at this time in the program, I always like to point out that at tlpodcast.com, we have an episode page for every episode we do with more information about our guests and links to some of the stuff we talk about. So I hope you check it out. If you want to subscribe, you can find us pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. If you like us enough, I hope you tell a friend and give us a favorable review. If you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, or email me at cmain at percipient.co. That's C-M-A-I-N at percipient.co. All right, let's get back to my conversation with Chris Hanman about the founding of TerraTrue. So you leave Snap, you take the family to Italy, I saw, yeah. you hang out there for a while, but ultimately you decide to become an entrepreneur and launch TerraTrue. How'd that come about? What motivated you to jump from appellate lawyer, as I said, to GC, not an entrepreneur? I mean, this is complete different right. sides of the table. It gets back to kind of what I love about appellate litigation, which is that I would be bored in my life if I was doing the same thing over and over again. It's why I never could have been a patent lawyer or a contracts lawyer and just kind of do the same thing. They're, they're, these are obviously there's brilliant people who do these jobs really, really well. I would not be one of those people. I would get bored. And so what I loved about Appellate was it was pretty much every case brought about a different flavor of the month. Being a GC at Snapchat was that multiplied by 100. And so once I had gone from employee 55 to 3,000, Snap went public. It was hard to imagine. Like to me, that was, I'd done what I kind of set out to do with law. And I was now looking to what's the next chapter? Uh, I've always envisioned my life taking on hopefully a, a less uh, tragic form, but it's kind of like secret life of Walter Mitty. Like I always envisioned the next new adventure. And one of the things that I got really passionate about, and it's hard to resist that siren song when you're in a successful startup, is wouldn't it be great to actually like found your own company, build something that hasn't been done before, do something that can be really impactful for the world, and also just be able to have a say in building a culture and building a, an actual entity, going from zero to something. It's one of the things you, you, I think most people in that space ask themselves. And so, but of course, you don't often get that opportunity. And especially as someone myself, not being a particularly technical person, uh, you know, the odds of being able to do that are, are kind of uh, few and far between. Then again, these things kind of happen. And one of the great happenstances of life is that when I was at Snap, the first CISO there, Jod Boutros, uh, was my you know partner. We built the privacy program at Snap from scratch. And he is a brilliant technologist, one of the greatest in, in, in the country. And he was looking at that. He had left Snap. He was looking to do his own thing, getting offers from everywhere to be CISOs at the best companies. And was kind of like at that same position, they're like, I want to do something different. And we began talking. And what we realized was the unique experience we had at Snap in literally rewriting the way privacy gets done at a modern, fast company was something that companies increasingly were going to need to develop in the wake of GDPR and all these patch quilt of laws coming down. And we said, you know, we have insights and we can build something that has never been done before. And it calls upon his special technical expertise. It calls upon the expertise that I had from the privacy and the legal perspective. 
And we were able to pull together some really great uh, people, ex-colleagues from Snap and elsewhere that could do something unique. And, you know, when life gives you that and all those cosmic tumblers click into place, you know, it's one of these things like, if not for that, why would I not do this? Here's something I'm passionate about, people I respect, um, uh, an opportunity that, again, ultimately, I, we have think has a, a, an incredible market opportunity and an unlimited potential. So if not for that, then for what would I ever like, be able to do that? So fast forward and, you know, haven't looked back. And what year was this? What year was the first time you guys started thinking about launching a company? This would have been 2018, toward the end of 2018. So you got you got some time away. You got at least a year away yep. from, from working. And before we jump into Terra True and what it does and how it helps with privacy, for those that might not understand at a very high level, explain what a corporate privacy program is or should be. That's actually a great question itself. There's a, often a big delta between uh, what it is and what it should be. But let's talk about, you know, at the end of the day, what it, what it really should be. A privacy program, especially in this day and age, is designed at the end of the day to understand what's the, all the data, how are you going to be using data, where are you going to share that data, and all the risks associated with those types of uses before you ever deploy those products, before you ever they go out into the wild. And the reason is this, not just law, but increasing uh, amounts of risk depend on understanding before you start collecting that data, what you're actually planning to collect, how that data maps onto various uh, risk profiles. And that is a lot easier said than done. And that is where the mischief often arises because the types of friction and potential bottlenecks in trying to understand all of the contours and data architecture of every new feature and iteration uh, when companies are trying to ship products every two weeks on agile sprint cycles is a Herculean task. And so that's often that big delta between where the programs should be and often where they end up compromising and end up falling short. And the risks you mentioned there, I mean, one that comes to mind, obviously, is theft. You know, you get hacked, somebody steals your data. But obviously, in this day and age, over the last few years, privacy regulations, GDPR, CCPA, those are the risks you're talking about, too, right? Yes. So Regulatory G- risks. Absolutely. So GDPR, which, you know, became uh, in effect in 2018, and then California followed suit with a handful of, of new regulations, states within the United States continuing to follow that lead. And so you get this balkanized world of privacy regulation that's increasingly complex, increasingly prescriptive, and sometimes contradictory, uh, whether that's Virginia or Colorado, now Connecticut. You have this series of states that are joining the fray. And that, of course, says nothing about the broader international environment. And, you know, GDPR is, covers all of the EU, but a number of other nation states from Brazil onward are, are having their own sorts of regulatory scrutiny. So companies in the tech space and, and more broadly are pretty much anyone with a website are confronting the, these risks. And what these laws increasingly are requiring companies to understand is really the answers to those, those core questions around, hey, what is the data we plan to collect? How are we going to use this data? All right, is this going to be used to, uh, are we going to take facial scans? Are we using this to authenticate users? Are we using it to track users in ways that are potentially controversial or create high risk types of, of issues that the laws require you to do extra work or whatever it might be? There is a whole host of questions that then often spin off dozens of sub questions that need to be carefully thought through. And to do all of that at scale at a fast paced environment is impossible to do in kind of the, the old school manual spreadsheets and templates. And so that's where technology can come in and help amplify the limited headcounts and resources of privacy and legal teams and really create that sort of structured scale that 
matches the way the product teams they're trying to keep up with. So I want you to explain what TerraTrue does. But before that, I think I want to put it in perspective with a couple of things I read, the things you had said. So one of the things you had said is TerraTrue or, or software should be able to empower legal teams to bring privacy to the forefront of company conversations. The other thing, I, and you just already alluded to this too. I saw a quote you had. The short answer is that laws today require companies to have a handle on what they're building. The days of simply shipping a product and crossing your fingers and hoping for the best are long gone. How does TerraTrue help with that? So TerraTrue is a single source of truth. It's the platform where it understands what your teams are planning to build and can then map what those products are going to be to the world's laws, return feedback back to those teams and create all and repurpose all that information into all these downstream types of workflows and analytics and reports that these laws require you to keep track of. Every single one of those steps today uh, in a privacy program is a manual repetitive process. TerraTrue starts with saying, hey, look, the only way you can understand privacy is if you understand before those products go through the door what your teams are planning to build. So we will gracefully integrate with where your product teams or in the business happens to be working. Whether that's in Jira, where a lot of companies start to do their work, we can gracefully pull into TerraTrue, okay, hey, these teams are building these features. And with smart rule-based systems and algorithms say, hey, look, uh, these are the things that warrant a privacy review. These are uh, issues that are going to be triggering reviews. So already you are uh, radically expediting the transparency. The key to, again, being able to run a privacy program is knowing what's coming down the pike. This makes us an automated way to understand that. It then automatically routes those sorts of uh, launches or features to the right people who need to review them, elevating and, and identifying early what needs to get reviewed and what doesn't, and where the high risks are and where the low risks are. So creating that instant triage and then mapping what's being built. Hey, it looks like you're planning to collect that facial scan or it looks like you're collecting social security numbers. Well, we can know which laws and which regulations that triggers and, and create different uh, feedback, spit it back out to those product teams in the tools they're working, not requiring people to kind of like jump into different interfaces and really create a 360 degree view from product development on through these privacy reviews and keep that process fast and nimble and ultimately a bit of a flywheel effect because the more you end up using TerraTrue, the more we learn about how you're using data, the more we can repurpose that data, and the more we can be predictive around uh, the risks and the ways different teams across the org continue to use data. So at that high level, it really is a way of ensuring that everyone is accountable and you know, we can keep people notified and synced in a way that makes privacy an equal uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, colleague with the, the product uh, development lifecycle. And I think you've described it as privacy by design, or I saw somewhere you say legal teams need to start from the beginning, get proactive and understand what products are being built and how that implicates privacy laws and privacy risks. One of the things I saw too, is you say, you need to shift left with it. Yeah. So shift left is a, is a development term. Explain what you mean by that when you say you need to shift left about privacy considerations. Sure. So if you think about the continuum of a product, uh, on the far left of that continuum, is like kind of the germs of good ideas, right? This is when someone says, hey, we should build this. Uh, and then from that leftward point, as you move rightward, you have, let's say, people specking out the product. You start to design it. You start to 
wireframe it, you start to test it, you start to you know, code it, and onward into the far right where you ultimately deploy that product into production and users are now engaging with it and you are collecting data. And historically, privacy has occupied this almost like off the charts rightward tilt. It was a very siloed reactive compliance function. It was consulted late, if at all, before these products went out the door. And that might have been fine in an old world pre-regulatory scrutiny. But in today's world, with this increasing patch quilt of laws, it's not sustainable to sort of just have products out the door and, and hope and pray. Uh, you need to have some visibility and, and suss these risks out earlier. And so our theory is to shift left, shift privacy left, weave it into the fabric of that software development lifecycle, and really take cues from the way security has done that. I mean, the notion of shift left isn't our own novelty. Security a decade or more ago started this kind of shift left earlier and earlier into the software process. And we think it's time for privacy to do that same. And we think that that's what these new laws are really kind of ushering in. And we're really at the vanguard of that movement, empowering companies to be able to have that proactive pre-deployment uh, approach to privacy that has historically not been something that anyone's been able to do. Let's talk about how it works. So let's say I'm a developer. I'm using Slack. It's how I communicate with others on my team. How does Terra True know that, oh, we're building a feature that includes collection of biometric information? How does that work? You say it's collecting data. Like, what's, what's look under the hood? Yeah. So let's take the, the classic like shopping. Almost the vast majority of uh, development product teams are using Jira. That's where they're creating their, um, their projects, their epics, these issues, as they're called, and laying out the features they want to build. Within Jira, there's this very powerful way that companies use to kind of tailor these Jira tickets, capturing all sorts of different information that's, again, idiosyncratic to their organization. TerraTrue has this very rich integration with Jira. We can read all these various custom labels, uh, these various rules that are set up to identify from which project, right? Like a company might have like 100 projects instead of Jira, maybe only five of them are ones with teams are using sensitive types of data. Uh, within those projects, we can identify, okay, uh, based on various rules or triggers or labels, how those teams are using data, uh, whether this is something that's going to trigger a particular high risk or whether it even triggers any, any sort of a privacy review of any sort. The ability to customize that in a few clicks without having to tax your engineering teams is one of the key, key virtues of TerraTrue. You're able to set the rules that make sense for your organization and have a structured workflow that will then pull over into territory. So you set the rules you want. We obviously have a lot of out of the box sorts of uh, ideas on how those configurations work. And at the end of the day, you're the developer in that hypothetical. You identify a new, a new feature. There might be something in that Jira ticket that identifies the nature of that data or maybe the types of data that teams have been working on in the past. However you guys have set that up, that will alert TerraTrue. That will then pull that Jira ticket into TerraTrue. So the developer doesn't have to worry about reaching out manually anymore to their privacy team. The privacy team doesn't have to hound them about, hey, you guys do anything that I should know about. It's automatically brought to Is this everyone's via attention. API? It's a webhook. So there's a Jira webhook. Okay. So every event will be pulled into TerraTrue uh, that, that's relevant. And then as the legal teams or as privacy teams or security teams are working inside of TerraTrue doing their work, uh, there's a two-way sync. So updates in TerraTrue push back to those Jira tickets. Everyone stays completely synced. So what we really want to ensure with these integrations is that we are, again, meeting the business where they are. I think one of the big challenges with any privacy or compliance program, but particularly privacy where you are trying to shift left and be a part of this process on a quick shipping cadence, 
is the bottleneck concerns. And we want this to be a reduce the pains of glass, reduce those frictions, and really empower organizations to, you know, you'll never lose visibility into kind of what's happening in your privacy program, even if it's happening outside of TerraTrue. And those integrations keep everyone accountable with the ability to notify, track their progress in the productivity systems that they choose to use. And, you know, it's all through a few simple clicks. Again, not that code. So that's, in an essence, kind of, you know, how we're able to seamlessly pull and recognize what needs to be done uh, without having to kind of like engage in any of those manual uh, follow-ups that often define bad practices. You know, and I think this is a problem with legal tech in general. You know, meet business where they are. You know, a lot of legal departments want to put in workflows and get legal tech software, which is great, which I highly encourage. But the problem then becomes you need the business people to interact with this, and it's just not something they're using. They're in Jira. Yeah. They're in Slack. Exactly. They're, you know, they're in Asana. So you, I think you raise a very interesting point there, and I think it's something overlooked. But while we're on that subject, let's go back to my example. I'm a developer. You know, I'm put up a Jira ticket for something to do to they included biometrics, development some biometrics. How do you tell me to keep an eye out and think about this? Does it update the ticket? Yep, it does. If you're engaging in biometrics, of course, that's going to trigger a whole series of sort of downstream obligations on the, the privacy team. That's also going to trigger uh, a number of different uh, recommendations and uh, safeguards that are taking their cues, not just from the laws, but also maybe from the organization's own rules, right? And so we are able to create uh, structured, scalable feedback, reflecting both what the law says, but also whatever that organization may think. So we're liberating people from having to go manually consult that wiki page or that confluence page to figure out what do we do with data when we're dealing with in this particular situation. All of that feedback is being routed back to those developers, back to the PMs in real time without anyone having to manually intervene. And at the same time, in parallel, you have the legal teams or the security teams or the legal or the privacy teams kind of doing their work. Uh, there's the, whenever you're dealing with sensitive data, there are all sorts of data protection impact assessments and other types of work that you need to kind of document and show your work. These things are messy, terrible, kind of soul-sucking uh, exercises for the most part at, at companies. And we, kind of speed that whole process up. We make it a really delightful interface, again, able to leverage past work, make it possible to kind of be predictive around how you should do that work. And again, make that a, a continuous process that is not slowing down the, the forward momentum of the organization, but at the same time, ensuring that that forward momentum is taking its cues from what the law requires and what the teams are, are saying in a way that is fully uh, integrated and again, avoiding a lot of that kind of bureaucratic uh, overhang that often defines these privacy programs. You know, that's what's cool about the product too, is I was thinking about this today when reading some stuff getting rid of the podcast is a lot of legal tech software is after the fact. So let's say we have some, a contract management tool or, you know, something that's going to help us negotiate the contract. So we have a playbook and they load it in the software and it tells us, well, this clause is a little different. This is what we like. You got to go back to the counterparty and negotiate this. TerraTrue is given the business people an idea about legal implications of what they're doing in real time. So as the developer starts to think about this, yep. the aspect of this feature, they've already starting to think about proactively the privacy. And I think that's, it's a different angle. Territory has a different angle than a lot of legal software out there. That's absolutely 100% correct. And I think what we saw as we surveyed the marketplace of, of privacy, but the broader even like the legal tech space is that so much of it 
this is not to denigrate it, right? That there are very acute needs to have software help with in the privacy space, like data after you've ingested, right? Uh, it is responding to consumers right, who are saying, exactly. uh, give me your da- my, my data. Clear-cut statutory obligations and software is there to help do make that happen. But that's where most of the vendors have congregated in, in, in serving that post-deployment world where we feel the market is trending increasingly in light of not just the regulations, but this overall uh, growing kind of zeitgeist we feel like this this privacy revolution that we've I mean, we have now Apple advertising iPhones with one value prop. Like, it will protect your privacy. Like, there's right. a new world of the way we think about privacy and the way companies now are having to build with privacy in mind. And what companies need to do is have this pre-deployment type of mindset that's very difficult to do with kind of do-it-yourself tools and spreadsheets that we sort of jerry-rig at Snap. Now you need something that can kind of keep pace. And Territory is that first-of-its-kind product that is shifting left, getting into the, the fabric of that development lifecycle, but doing it, to your point, Chad, exactly right, doing it in a way that feels like a natural extension of the way the business is working, as opposed to forcing the business to come to what legal is, is asking them to do. We knew out of the gates that simply wasn't going to be a, a tenable way to approach this, which is why we've been so focused on the strength of our integrations, the APIs, and the ability to kind of have this like seamless extension of the way your business works with the way privacy and compliance can work together. For TerraTrue to keep up on all the various changes in the law, new laws, you've already alluded to this, several states beyond California are starting to implement privacy laws. Do you have lawyers on staff that compile this information and put it in the software? How, how's that work? We are very fortunate to have very smart privacy lawyers, uh, not just people who know the law and are kind of savants in their own way, right? but, but people who like TerraTrue more broadly understand the way product teams work. So our head of privacy, uh, Anthony Prestia, is someone I've worked with for years. He was at Snap. I hired him to help lead our privacy program there. He is a coder. He's a lawyer. He's brilliant. And he is someone who not just understands the legal implications, but understands the way those legal rules apply in practice and the way they affect product development. And I think that's honestly one of our great competitive advantages. We don't just approach privacy as this bloodless, dry legal exercise. We understand the vitality and the way privacy can make products better and the way privacy needs to work with modern product teams. And so, yes, under Anthony's guidance, he has a team of other like-minded privacy lawyers who were able to draw on and and create new modules or or new laws that speak to, again, kind of the most pressing areas. So, of course, any of the U.S. laws, but increasingly other laws around the world or even sectoral laws, you know, whether it's going to be, you know, HIPAA or where we end up going. That's kind of one, again, one of the great moats that I think we possess here. So what's next for TerraTrue? What's on the roadmap and near term? I think the roadmap is incredibly exciting. For me, when I think about the vision and kind of where TerraTrue can be, I, I take stock of kind of what the tools are that any modern company today needs to build a product. And roughly speaking, you know, you think about Jira or some sort of bug tracking system, you think of GitHub as like version source control. I mean, it's impossible to imagine modern companies getting by building without either one of those tools or the kind of substitutes. Our view is that in the future, that's an unstable balance as all these privacy laws continue to proliferate and the need for companies to understand the nature of what they're building, the data before those products go out the door becomes an insurmountable, compelling interest. 
And so you're going to need a third leg of that development stool. And we think TerraTrue is going to be that. We think TerraTrue is the only platform that's going to gracefully integrate with those systems that already speaks the language of the business and can seamlessly understand what's coming down the pike, get the feedback back, and provide the rigor that any GC, uh, a buttoned-up uh, legal privacy team is going to want with the flexibility and agility uh, that any kind of modern agile privacy uh, uh, product team is, is going to demand. And so to us, that's the exciting vision in the future for TerraTrue. Chris, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. If people want to get in touch with you or learn more about TerraTrue, where do you want to send them? Yep, TerraTrue.com will give them all the information that they need to see. And uh, Chad, I really appreciate it. It's been a great conversation. Okay, that's a wrap for today's episode. As always, we really appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, etc. Also, if you like us enough, I hope you leave us a favorable review. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.